standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Mickey here and I have to tell you that this might be a tough listen for some of you because I am going to be joined by journalist Kelly Wells to talk about our experiences of eating disorders and self-harm. Now mental health issues come in all shapes and sizes and I have had my fair share mostly stemming from my depression which for me led to phases of disordered eating and self-harm anything to feel a little bit in control. Kelly's the same. So while neither Kelly nor I are experts, we have both been there and emerged out the other side. Also, Kelly has written a novel, The Fear, which channels her experiences of depression, anxiety and self-harm. It is excellent and also very darkly funny. And in reading The Fear, I recognise a lot of what fueled my self-harm. And just understanding why someone might be doing something so self-damaging is a big step in being able to help and to be there for them. Eating disorders and self-harm have unusually made the news a fair bit during the course of the pandemic, which perhaps unsurprisingly has seen a rise in eating disorders. They have the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorders and can, of course, affect either sex, although 75% of those who suffer from eating disorders are female. With regards to self-harm, the official stats on this aren't available as yet, so I can't say definitively that it's risen during the pandemic, but professionals are reporting a surge in self-harming behaviour, not just in adults, but also among children, some as young as eight. And it's a crisis. I mean, it was a crisis before the pandemic, and unsurprisingly, COVID has not helped. Services are chronically underfunded, which means no inpatient beds, not enough community clinicians and a backlog of referrals for people in urgent need of support. That in turn means there are many people in a desperate situation unable to get life-saving care. If you or someone you know needs help, beateatingdisorders.org.uk is a good resource and mind.org.uk is brilliant on, well, loads of stuff, including eating disorders, self-harm and suicide ideation. Harmless.org.uk is another excellent website for advice around self-harm. I'd also add that the journalist Victoria Smith, known as Glosswitch on Twitter, does some excellent rage fueled writing around her own anorexia and is well worth a read. I hope you find this interesting. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by journalist and big pal of the show, Kelly Wells. Kelly, hello. Hello, Mickey. How are you doing, buddy? Yeah, I think I'm good, thank you. I think you're good too. You can never be sure, but I think, I think I'm all right, mate. I think I'm all right. Good stuff. So you've joined me to talk about eating disorders and self-harm. Eating disorders have just hit the headlines recently following the very sad death of Nikki Graham at just 38 years old from anorexia. I am going to caveat this conversation right at the top. Kelly and I are very much going to be talking subjectively about our own experiences of this. So yeah, Kelly, like me, you have got previous here. Would you mind telling us a bit about your illness? Strangely, although I never really talk about it very much, I started suffering with a form of eating disorder. It, it was never diagnosed when I was about 11 years old. And a gym teacher caught me looking in the mirror at my body from the side and asked me to go into her office and asked me if I was eating properly and if I had any issues or anything. And I was so mortified by the whole affair that I just made sure that nobody knew anything anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's, right, you know, made sure that I didn't do anything foolish like look in the mirror or show any interest like that. So 
that was my first experience of, of eating disorders. And I kind of carried them through my life. And I think they're quite analogous with self-harm, which I sort of ventured into at the age of about 17 or 18. And it's all about a coping mechanism. I think that's what, what they all act as. Obviously, I don't want to conflate self-harm, anorexia and a lot of other issues that people have. But having experienced them both, I really do feel they have a lot of commonalities about control, about relief, about the relief of suppressing emotions mm -hmm. and how much energy that takes out of you. So I felt incredibly devastated when I learned about Nikki's death. There are a few people in the public eye that, that we're all very aware of that have difficulties. And it's been a tough couple of years with Caroline Flack, which I felt really hard yeah. with, with Nikki, because it really feels like we're all on this tightrope and someone's just lost their balance or someone's taken a step off it. And it doesn't seem to matter what the issue is, depression or alcoholism or sort of suicide ideation or anything like that, anorexia, self-harm, we're all just clinging on. And I feel like it hurts all of us when something like Nikki's death happens and we will have to spend a few moments dealing with it. The empathy is strong. I, I'm feeling it. I think you probably are as well. Yeah, definitely. And I don't think there's any doubt that the pandemic has triggered a crisis in eating disorders. In fact, it's estimated around 1.25 million people in the UK have an eating disorder. But it is so rare for any of this to make the news until something like Nikki's death happens. Why do you think that is? I don't think people like to talk about it. I think it's as simple as that. If you suffer from mental health issues, you learn quite young that hiding them is the best way of making progress in your life. A lot of people sort of say, oh, you're feeling a bit down, you know, cheer up, go ahead, do this, do that, push mm -hmm. yourself forward, you'll get yourself out of it, blah, 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 blah. I feel like as human beings, we've got this desire to see things fixed. It's a, an old cliche, but if you go to the A&E with a broken leg, you can get plastic cast put on mm -hmm. it, blah, 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 blah. Other people have written about that very beautifully. But with mental health, there is no cure your outlook on the world is always going to be affected by your mental health condition. And I think that makes it difficult for there to be good mental health provision because it's just funding and more funding and more funding. Well, it's good that this is in the news and people are talking about it. I don't think there's going to be any real change in mental health provision until we start accepting that there aren't normal people and mentally ill people. There are people. Yeah. And sometimes we all need help. It is worth giving money, putting money into education about anorexia, about bodies, about health, and continuing to try and support people, even though you don't see meaningful change on a political level, for example, or on a cultural level. Because if a difference can be made to one person's life through mental health provision, and, and that does happen, that's a great thing. But there are so many people out there that will never get help because taking that first step... It's too big a first step for a lot of people. And even if you've taken it, you have to keep taking it. It's not a path you can take. And once you've made a point of progress, you can then move on to the next point of progress. You're always sliding back. And it takes great and great effort to continue moving forward. And it's difficult to know how to support that outside the person directly. 
you might know what's going on in your head, but what the help you might need is completely unique. And how do you tailor that on a national level? It's such a big problem. It's such a huge, terrible problem. I think the only thing that we can do is to keep talking about it. And if we keep talking about it, we can make each other feel better, perhaps, telling each other that they're not alone, that we share experiences. And that's what I wanted to do with the book, principally. I didn't want anyone to feel as alone as I did during that period of time of my life. Definitely. Your book, The Fear, channels lots of the stuff that we're talking about now. And what you've just said there about language, I think, is really interesting. And that difficulty when you're going through it of being able to express what you're going through or even being able to want to express what you're going through. It all feels like so much energy that you don't have. And what I've seen recently that has been interesting to me is a move from using the phrase eating disorders to using disordered eating which is what I would probably suggest I had, which affected me a lot later in my life. I was, it was when I went to university and my disordered eating kind of kicked in along with self-harm, which we're going to get to properly in a moment. And when my depression became something that couldn't be ignored anymore, all went hand in hand. And I think just that, that tweak of language means that me now can look back at little me then and go, oh, yeah, that's that's what you were doing. That's what you were doing. And it was about control. And it was about actually my disordered eating was the way I had order in my life. It felt like the only thing I had control over. That's really interesting in the context of you saying about how it seems like eating disorders and disordered eating is on the rise during the pandemic, because people's worlds have got so much smaller especially especially kids Mm. and younger people who are not going out who can't can't express themselves at all and can't leave the house so can't even have those times when they're with their friends and they can be a person outside of their home and their family they can't be and I think the one thing you can almost always do is not eat or harm yourself physically I think it it sounds a bit reductive but if you're in a very very tight space whether actually physically or mentally that's where the struggle comes in that's something I can do I can choose not to eat that or I'm just going to eat that and I'm going to eat that like I've been doing a bit of that and now I feel the pressure of the extra weight that I've put on Mm -hmm. and I can feel myself already seconds after coming out of lockdown I can feel myself going into that no, don't eat that. And if you don't eat that, you can have that later. Yep. And yep. it's terrifying because I'm 45 and I feel like I should know better. We do know better, but it doesn't mean that it goes in. It just happens. And it's like somebody switched the light off and I'm like, oh, God, now I'm going to have to deal with this as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm 44, so hot on your heels there. I think what has helped me is acknowledging that I'm always going to have a complicated relationship with food. Just just acknowledging that. And it makes me laugh. My mum's always like, oh, I don't understand why you're so picky. She was constantly on a diet when I was little. I'm like, oh, it's really weird that you don't get that, mum. I mean, where did I get this from? Constantly on a diet. And I was told we'd rather have her for a week than a fortnight. She eats us out of house and home and, and like was always the little dumpy one and all of this stuff. When I got to university, it was just still in there. It doesn't go away. 
And I just think you just have to know that that is with you then. That is that is something in your brain that will occasionally, like you say, like when the light's on, it's fine. You're sailing through. Who gives a shit about the calories on the back of a packet? As soon as that light goes off. Oh, yeah, I seem to remember all of the calories for everything ever. That's stored in there with 80s pop lyrics. Brilliant. Yeah, I was talking to somebody on Twitter the other day about that very thing. I think it was Deborah Francis White, actually, and she she did a tweet saying that uh, somebody's done some research to say that you can free up sections of your brain so that you can have new knowledge. And I was thinking, like, if I could get all the stuff about 90s alternative music and football (laughs) out of my brain, I could free up about 75% of brain power. (laughs) It, it, It would be amazing. I really feel you when you say your mum was on the diet constantly when you were growing up because... When I was growing up in the 80s, you, you might remember this, but there were a lot of diet kits coming out and exercise videos were making a turnaround. Everyone loved it. And my mum was there in her leotard with her Jane Fonda video and her, Same. like, you can have one of these caramel bars over three days and you're not allowed to eat anything else and you get them in a kit and stuff. And you internalise that of shit. Course, you you internalise it and you see all these slim women on the telly and in the magazines because we were not very self-aware at all in the 80s and 90s we really weren't and you internalize it and I think it, you, you kind of do it without without noticing and I found as I've got older I kind of enjoy making myself hungry I get a degree of pleasure out of being incredibly hungry which which is terrible oh, it's a bad thing yeah well just to kind of underline how bad it is eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric disorders they can of course affect either sex but 75 percent of those who suffer from eating disorders are female and so i wanted to move on from that point according to a report carried out by the education policy institute and the prince's trust i'm going to quote from that report here well-being and confidence levels are similar in boys and girls at the end of primary school whereas girls suffer a larger decrease by the time they reach 14 Apparently, girls' well-being plummets even more towards the end of their teenage years, with their depressive symptoms rising substantially. Now, it's kind of not surprising to me, any of that, because I think, and we've just touched on it there, society, the world at large, the patriarchy, whatever we're going to call that bullshit, sets impossible standards for girls and young women. Have a body, don't have a body, reject stereotypes, embrace stereotypes have boundaries but don't exclude anyone consent to have agency and you know above all of that you have to be kind and it's exhausting it's exhausting trying to work out where you fit in the world without any of that crap on the back of that it's not a massive surprise to learn that instances of self-harm are rising and the number of children with some as young as eight attending A&E in mental ill health has risen from once or twice a week to the same every day, which is terrifying. Self-harm, as you, you've mentioned briefly, but that is a, very much another experience in Kelly Wellesley's back catalogue, isn't it? Yeah, it's the main form of mental health issue that I've had in my life. And I'm quite honestly petrified about those figures. It is terrifying. I have the feelings in my body of how I was when I was self-harming and it's so unbearable the sense of energy that you have in your body that has no outlet for for me I'm talking from a personal point of view but in those moments you're full of this electrical energy and you cannot discharge it Mm -hmm. and 
you can't talk to anyone about it because you don't know what it is and it might be shameful. This spiral of thinking about it, it it's, it's a really dark place and it scares me because I was 17, 16, 17 when I was doing this stuff and the self-awareness and knowledge of the world that kids at eight must be having. I, I don't know what to say about that. I, I have no words. When you were talking about that, I saw your body physically tense. And I think I said this on the podcast when I was talking to Terry White, who also covers self-harm in her brilliant memoir, Coming Undone. For me, when I did it, you just encapsulated that energy that was inside me. And it felt like, I can't show anyone this. I can't deal with it. I need to get it out. And it felt very much like a release I could control. And seeing the blood without getting too graphic, seeing the blood felt like, oh, there's something real now. It's not just all in my head. The sense of achievement that I felt once I'd done it to my satisfaction was akin to the sense I have now when I finished a piece of writing that I'm really pleased with. It's endorphins and adrenaline and addiction, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's strong, really, really strong. And people are obviously distracted by self-harm because... It's a very obvious thing. Whereas an eating disorder, you can, you can, because I have, conceal it from people through various means. Self-harming, cutting, burning, all those different sort of things. It, you can conceal it, but it's, it's quite difficult because people tend to notice, like your friends will notice. People ask you questions. But sometimes I didn't necessarily want to conceal it I wanted someone to ask me those questions because I couldn't start the conversation myself and for me I, I find it really interesting what you've just said about that being a creative energy for you for me I think it was anger and sadness I think it was that kind of rage that was the energy in me that I didn't know how to deal with and when I would do stuff where people would notice it was so they would go why even if they were furious with me there, there was a conversation starter I very much relate to that. And when I was writing the book, it did bring out a lot of guilt in me because the main character is very narcissistic. She looks at the world from within her mental health prison. All of her relationships are dictated by it. She is inadvertently selfish in her dealings with other people. And I felt that a lot because I felt a lot of guilt when I cut myself that people would think I was trying to attract their attention and I knew I was. Like in a cry for help, flag waving kind of way. It's very involved in shame. I I would just, I, I don't know, maybe kids' experiences with it today are slightly different because mental health awareness is a lot better than it was when I was growing up. But there was very much a sense that I was doing it because I wanted to be the centre of attention. And I did, but not for the reasons that people seem to think that I did. That made me feel worse and even more confused about it. So once I put it out there a few times and got the reaction that people were just sort of just ignore it, she's just playing up. I had to channel that shame even more into hiding it, into keeping it. And I felt like I'd been left with no alternative. I felt like, well, I've done this and nobody's listening to me still. But I don't know what to say and... I'm annoying people and 
it's a very, very dark place to be in. Even if people ask you, they say, what are you doing? You can't say. You can't say, well, I've got this, I've got this huge energy inside me, this massive blackness that has to get out and I can't move because it's so huge. And this is the only way I can try and let it out. What do you think? What should I do? It's not a conversation you can have with a carer, maybe with a parent, with a friend, because it, it sounds, to all intents and purposes, a bit mad. And I think that's people how people still see it. But it is dramatic. That's It sounds dramatic because it is dramatic. It sounds mad because your, you know, mental health is suffering. And you have channeled all of this, as you've mentioned, and your experiences with the black dog, a.k.a. depression, keep saying experiences it sounds a bit jolly doesn't it like it's a trip to the races or something but I think that that is like our experience of these things into the fear and you've made it very entertaining but Eleanor your central character one of the things I like most about her is she has these moments where she tries to fool herself and it it is a split second and then she goes yeah that didn't work did it and I think I think that's really interesting because when you're dealing even with stuff as all-consuming as disordered eating or self-harm, there are those flashes, aren't there, of recognition that I could not be doing this to myself. Yeah, the self-awareness is strong. It was a surprise, actually, because when I first thought about writing the book, I didn't anticipate that it was going to be humorous in any way. But in the writing, I realised there had been... that There is a degree... Oh, I, don't, I don't know how this is going to sound, but there is a degree of humour in mental health problems in that you find yourself doing the most ludicrous things putting yourself in these ridiculous situations in order to create an outcome that you've calculated on a on an abacus or something and you put yourself and sometimes you have these moments of clarity where you just say what are you doing (laughs) what are you oh my god and then you have to kind of quietly reverse out of it and hope that nobody noticed what you were doing and you, you just think everyone thinks that you're mad all the time. But it, it made me laugh thinking, you know, all these people that came through my life and all of the experiences and the positive feelings that they gave me. I had a brilliant time during that period of my life. I was in a band for a bit and I worked at a record shop, which was like my dream job at the time. And I was going out drinking all the time. And I was in this crazy place, but it was one of the best times of my life. It just happens that it was also one of the darkest times in my life you've said that having read the fear mums of teenage girls have got in touch with you and asked how how do we talk to our daughters about this how do we how do we broach the subject what can we do and as I said at the top of the podcast this is very subjective we only know from our experiences and through the prism of our experiences but I wondered what helped you the most when you were going through it and what do you do now when those feelings rear up? People that have got in touch with me, it's, it's interesting actually, there have been some mums but there's also been a few dads which I think is to do with, with my following being quite football orientated mm-hmm. but anyway, a lot of people have got in touch with me and it, it did make me think what would I have really wanted and for me personally, my personal experience would be I'd just like to have known that somebody was there, that they were they could see me. It might not have necessarily made me stop doing it, but perhaps an adult intervention where somebody could have just said, I know it hurts, but you're going to be okay. Just just hang in. It sounds like dead words, 
but I think that can really give you something to grip onto. If somebody just says to you, I see you, mm-hmm. I'm not going to sit here and say that I understand what you're doing or why you're doing it, because that would be presumptuous. I don't know why you're cutting yourself. I don't know why you're having difficulty eating or any of those things, but I'm here. If you tell me something, I'll try and learn about it. If you need help, you tell me and I'll try and get you it, but I'm here. And that is what I say to parents. I think it's very triggering to see a young person cutting themselves. It's a very vivid, unpleasant thing to have to deal with. But I don't think we should be distracted by the fact that there's blood. It's a coping mechanism for somebody. It's not the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. And what your kid is doing is they're saying, I'm trying to communicate something here. And I don't know what it is, and I don't know if you can help me, but this is it. This is what's happening. I think one of the really key things you said there as well is don't expect them to stop doing it. It's not going to be an immediate. You can't shout someone out of doing what they're doing. So I think all of that advice there is really, really good just to be there to show that you're listening and that you're available to that person. And also I would add, do your research outside of that. Get in touch with loads of organisations that can help you in case you do need to make an intervention and that might be something that comes out of that. So, Kelly, obviously the fear is available to download, isn't it? Where can people get their hands on it and have a read? You can get it on Apple Books and Amazon only at the moment, I'm afraid. I am working on getting it out on other platforms, but for now, those are the places. And there's also a link in my Twitter bio if you can't find it. Where can people enjoy your excellent deployment of gifts on Twitter? I am at Kelly underscore Wells. And I would like to warn people, as previously mentioned, there is a lot of football chat. There's a lot of posting of photos of middle-aged men looking really angry that you won't understand <laughs> if you're not interested in football. But I have it on good authority. Mickey, Hello? you're not into football, I say. You're no, not. not massively, no. But you still follow me and you still love it. So yeah. I muted her ages ago. Muted her ages ago. Yeah, thanks, That's mate. a lie. That. It's yeah. a lie. I yeah. did not know. Yeah, You're right. very entertaining on Twitter and you do use the best gifts. Also, you do exciting stuff for a day job. What are you up to at the moment? I have been working for international rock star mayhem purveyor Amanda Palmer. <laughs> What do you do for a living? Oh, I purvey mayhem. Thanks for asking. Well, that's what she does. And then she's got a small backroom team of people like me who try and translate it into into wonderful <laughs> things that, that we all produce as art. But it's the best job I ever had. It's probably my dream job, which is odd because my dream job was being on top of the pops when I was a kid. Well, you have performed beautifully for me today. So I'm I'm very appreciative. Thank you so, so much for chatting to me, Kelly. Thank you, Mickey. It's been a pleasure. Standard issue for all women.